you will take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. Our passage today is going to be verses 1 through 13. Romans 8, an Everest-like chapter in God's Word. Let's hear the Word of God this morning. Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but for those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There are those, there are, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Let's pray together. Lord God, what a magnificent chapter of the Bible that we come to this day. Lord, the truths in this chapter alone, we could spend months, indeed we'll spend a lifetime not only seeking to understand, but to enjoy. Lord, as we open your word today, we would ask for your help, we would ask for your Holy Spirit, the very same Spirit that is spoken of in these verses, that that same Spirit would come and open our eyes and give us understanding of your word. That you'd help us to see, that you'd help us to understand, that you'd help us to embrace and enjoy and know the blessed assurance that comes from these verses. So Lord, would you speak truth into our lives now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I grew up in northeast Tennessee where we're surrounded by mountains. Back in 2004, we moved to Kentucky back uh, in those days for me to continue on with seminary, good to see the stringers here today, just happen to be using this illustration when you're here, it's good to see you. So we moved in 2004 to Kentucky for seminary, and I remember the first time we went back to East Tennessee for Christmas to visit. We've been making our way down, and there's a particular place where we live near our home where the road all of a sudden opens up to this majestic view of the mountains. We got to came up over the summit there, and all of a sudden these mountains were in view, and I just, I looked at, Je- I, I was driving, so I didn't look at Jennifer, I said, Jennifer, look at the mountains. Just for a moment, just amazed to see these mountains. Now, I had grown up with these mountains. I had climbed these mountains. I had seen these mountains every single day that I lived as a child and as an adult, and moving away now, and after three or four months of being gone, coming back and seeing these amazing, beautiful mountains. You see, I had 
taken these mountains for granted. Growing up around them, I had never saw them or at least enjoyed them for the beauty that they were. You know, as I think about that, I think that that's many times what we do with the gospel. It's the reality of our lives. It's the very thing that we enjoy daily. It is the sustenance of your life. It's the very thing that has united you to God, reconciled you to God. The very truth that has forgiven you of your sins. Its impact is all around us. And yet, we often go by day by day, unable, for whatever reason may be, to enjoy the blessings of God's amazing grace. You know, I think that we could say the same about Romans chapter 8. I think a lot of people, obviously, have access to these verses. But how many of us are enjoying the truth found in them? We know what's in Romans 8, many of us. You hear a verse quoted, you can know that, well, that's Romans 8. Very familiar and acquainted with Romans 8, but how many of us are enjoying the benefits and blessings that these verses bring us? So as we come out of the winding, difficult chapter 7, it's as if we're now coming to this, to behold this majestic view of Romans 8. Absolutely stunning. You know, sometimes preachers will say, we could spend a year in these ver- verses. With no hesitation, you could spend that long in, these, in this chapter and, and never, I was, even as I was preparing to preach, I'm like, I could just preach and preach and preach, and I was having a hard time getting these 11 verses down to just one sermon. And you may see that towards the end when it's been three hours later. Romans 8 is a passage that has been the source of comfort and hope to so many Christians through the years. Both in life and in death. Oftentimes you'll hear Romans 8 preached at a funeral. And as someone once said, Romans chapter 8 is a great chapter to live on, and it's a great chapter to die on. Why is that? Well, one of the things that we could say about Romans 8, among many, is really Romans 8 unpacks what Paul has said already in chapter 7, verse 6. You look back to chapter 7, verse 6. Paul says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Romans 8 is an exposition, it is a detailed explanation of what the new life in the Spirit looks like. Primarily, as we live life as believers, holding fast to this wonderful gospel of grace, being given amazing Assurance, not only in the presence, but assurance of our future. Think about how this chapter begins and how it ends. It begins by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation, and it ends in verse 39 with no separation. So you have no condemnation at the beginning and no separation at the end. What confidence, what assurance, what hope is right here in chapter 8. So as we begin, we're going to walk through chapter 8 over five sermons. But as we begin this morning, we're going to see several important truths about our new life in the Spirit. New life in the Spirit. What does this new life bring? We're going to see, walk through this passage in, in several points this morning. We're going to see how our new life is declared we're going to see that in verse 1 and how it's accomplished. We're going to see that in verses 2 and 3. And then verses 4 through 11, how this new life is displayed. It's declared, it's accomplished, and then displayed. Let's look at this together. Our new life declared, point number one. 
Romans 8.1 is one of the most glorious declarations you will find in all of Scripture. If you've been a Christian for very long, or if you've been in the church for a period of time, you have likely heard this verse, you've likely quoted this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Namely, that those who are in Christ no longer stand guilty or condemned before God. You're a Christian. This truth covers your life. God no longer looks at you as guilty. The word we translate condemnation really is, uh, this particular word is only used in two other places, Romans 5, 16, and 18. And it refers to the sealed fate of the lost, those who are ultimately estranged from God. But Paul is now declaring that those who are found to be in Christ are no longer in a state of lostness or estrangement from God. They've been found, they've been pardoned, they are no longer condemned, they are no longer declared guilty. Certainly we see that in very important transition word, don't we? Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation. And while that word therefore connects us immediately to the context prior, the verses prior, it actually stretches all the way back to chapter 3, verse 21. Particularly as you get to chapter 5, more specifically verses 12 through 21, I just want you to see this. Because chapter 6 and 7, Paul's kind of gone off the side for a moment to, to explain some things. But if you, if you go back to chapter 5, look, let me just pick up in verse 18. You can see the flow here. Therefore, this is 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned through in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then you could just go to chapter 8. Then There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Paul's taken 6 and 7 to explain some things about some misunderstandings that would arise about the gospel of grace. Now he comes back to continue his wonderful description of the beautiful gospel that we have. Paul has declared this same truth before. If you go to chapter 5 verse 1, he says it more positively as he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And now in chapter 8, one, he refers to it in a negative viewpoint that we, are, that we don't have condemnation. So in 5.1, namely what we have, and 8.1, namely what we don't have as Christians. We have peace, and we don't have condemnation. So in Christ, we are now beyond the reach of God's just anger against our sin. Brothers and sisters, as he has talked and labored to explain for us in previous chapters, this has absolutely nothing to do with your performance. You didn't earn this. You didn't achieve this standing before God. The reason you are not condemned before a holy God has nothing to do with your actions. It has everything to do with God's grace and his actions performed through Christ. Indeed, it's despite our efforts. Paul has gone to great lengths to show that our wonderful deliverance is not due to our own works, but to the glorious grace of God. So Paul wants there to be no question for the believer. You know, he's just come out of chapter 7 where there's this tension, there's this struggle. Pastor Jeremy preached last week on how the reality of indwelling sin continues to plague us in this world in which we live and how we wrestle and we do the things that we don't want to do and we don't do the things we know we should do. And there's this tension, there's this war in our soul, if you will, as a Christian. And now he comes into this chapter 8 to reassure us that as those who are in Christ, no condemnation. You've been pardoned. 
He wants there to be no question about your status before God, that somehow your status before God could be in jeopardy. He wants you to know with certainty, even in the midst of this ongoing conflict with sin's presence, that there is complete deliverance from sin's penalty. Now, I want us to consider the truth of verse 1 by way of a few points of application. What does this mean for us? Obviously, the obvious meaning is that we're not, not condemned. We've been released from the condemnation that our sin brought. What does this mean for us? What does this lead? <clears throat> what does this lead to? I don't, there's many things, but let me just narrow it down to a few. First of all, it means that we must kill feelings of guilt. We must put to death feelings of guilt. Sometimes as Christians, we struggle with our past, don't we? We look back and we realize the depths of our own depravity, or even as we live out Romans 7 in the present, as we wrestle with indwelling sin, we, we see the struggle, we see the sin that's often present in our life, or we see sin that's been in our past, and we wonder, have I truly been forgiven of these things? You see, the accuser, Satan, would have us think at times that surely God wouldn't forgive that sin. Surely God wouldn't forgive you for how long you lived in that lifestyle or in that way. But listen, brothers and sisters, if you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, Satan cannot condemn you. Your family or friends cannot condemn you. You cannot condemn you. There is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, no matter how often you are reminded of your past and even present failures, listen to the truth of verse 1. Listen to, the, to what this chapter has to say. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then you can jump ahead if you want. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There are a lot of charges that could come against us. Who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These are rhetorical questions. No one. No one can separate you. No one can condemn you if you're in Christ. So as a result of the truth that we find here, one of the responses is that as we seek to feel guilty, you can't guilt your way to salvation. As we feel guilty, and yes, as we feel convicted for sin, we should confess it and repent. But if you continue to wallow in guilt, friend, you're, you're listening to a lie that somehow, even as a Christian, you can be condemned. That is not true. Sometimes we get hung up over just that one big thing we've done. But friend, is, isn't it true that we sing Jesus paid it all? I mean, is there a song that we sing that Jesus paid it most, most of it? Do we sing Jesus paid some of it? No, he paid all of it. All of it. All of your sins. Past, present, future, big, small, whatever you want to put the tag on it. All of your sins, if you are in Christ, have been forgiven and you are no longer condemned. Robert Mounts wrote this. He said, to insist on feeling guilty is but another way of insisting on helping God with our salvation. Don't insist on feeling guilty. Rest with complete confidence that what Christ did on the cross secured your salvation once and for all. You know, we sing the song, and we will in just a few, <clears throat> when I'm done preaching. That second verse of before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
Upward I look and see him there who made an end, end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And that, that, that song is, is rich with, with instruction to our souls because you will be tempted to despair. You will be tempted to look of the guilt within and the, look, and the guilt of the past. But your response should not be to continue to look and wallow in that guilt, but to look and see Christ who made an end of all your sin. No longer condemned. We're no longer condemned. Don't, don't wallow in guilt. Kill the guilt. Number two. Rest in our future with certainty. We're going to say more about this in a minute. But sometimes Christians worry about the future. One of the ways that you can tell whether you or someone else is is struggling with some aspect of works salvation is whether or not they worry about their future. Because if you say, I've come to Christ, I've believed in Jesus, I've believed in the gospel, and yet you're wavering, you're, you're thinking, am I going to make it to heaven? What are you basing that on? Was Jesus' sacrifice not sufficient? Was his finished work not really finished? See, what you're basing that uncertainty about is on your performance. Am I really going to get in? Now, many of you travel a lot. Your jobs require you to to use the airlines, especially. And you know, when you're flying, you, you get to the gate, you can always tell those who are on standby and those whose seats are confirmed, can't you? You know, the folks whose seats are confirmed, they're happy. They're charging their iPhone over in the corner. They're on their MacBook, little plug for Apple, I guess, right? They're listening to Spotify. I mean, they're, they're just relaxed, having good conversation. But those folks that are on standby, they're not as relaxed, are they? They're a little tense. They're a little closer to the counter. They're, they're leaning in, waiting. Anytime the intercom comes on, they're, they're, they're a little nervous. Is that going to be my name? Friend, if you're in Christ, you are not on standby. If you're in Christ, your seat is confirmed, and you can rest well. The ticket has been purchased, your seat is reserved, and you will get to your destination, no questions asked. Rest with confidence about your future because of this wonderful truth of being in Christ and no longer condemned. And number three, we must worship God in joy. Brothers and sisters, there's no other response to verse one other than worship. We didn't deserve this. We didn't earn this. God gave it to us because he was pleased to do so and it would bring him glory. We worship. Worship will be the response of those who have been rescued by divine grace. If you know how, if you know the depths and the wonderful reality of Romans 8.1, you know full well the emotion and the passion and the confidence that wells up inside of you, even when we sing certain songs, reminding you of the deliverance that we have in the gospel. Even when you're away from this corporate gathering, your affection for God continues to increase. So this is what he says in verse 1. We're no longer condemned. The second truth that we see in this passage about our new life. Not only does he declare the truth of our new life, he talks about how this new life is accomplished. Verses 2 and 3. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, From the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son. His own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Paul makes this wonderful announcement doesn't he in verse 1. And then he explains how it came about in verses 2 and 3. You're no longer condemned. Why? Because God has set you free. How? Through sending his son. 
God has done what the law could have never done. In essence, what he does in verses 2 and 3 is he summarizes everything he's already said since chapter 3. You say, well, why does he, I mean, hasn't he just spent four or five chapters saying what he's just say, saying again in verses 2 and 3? Yes. He summarizes it here. We, we're set free. How? Not by our obedience to the law, but by Christ's obedience. Look at verse 2. The law of the spirit of life, there's this new principle at work, has set you free from the law of the spirit, or excuse me, has, has set you free from the law of sin and death. The work of the Holy Spirit in your life has set you free from what the law was going to bring, condemnation. How did that come about? God doing what the law could not do, weakened by our flesh, sends his own son, sends his own son. Verse 3, notice the twofold work of Christ here. He sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This points to the life of Jesus. It's not saying that Jesus was sinful. It says in the likeness of sinful, he was like us, yet without sin, Hebrews tells us. He was like us in every respect. He was human, fully human, and yet without sin. So he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. So his incarnation is being referred to here. Again, not that Jesus had sin, he didn't, he was like us, and yet he lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father. He did keep the law, he did obey, and yet he condemned sin in the flesh. I think this points to the death that he died as he dies as our substitute, as he takes our place. Listen, Jesus doesn't die. We say this all the time, and and it's a misreading on the gospel, so be careful how you talk about the atonement. Jesus doesn't die just to make salvation possible. That's not the gospel. Jesus dies to guarantee salvation for those who believe in him. He accomplishes something on the cross. He secures our redemption. He atones for our sin. He takes our place. He died to actually accomplish something. The law of the spirit of life then sets us free from the law of sin and death. In other words, there's this new law or principle at work in us. The law brings death, but the spirit brings life. Because of Jesus' obedience and his sacrificial death on the cross. This is exactly what we see. There's no condemnation. Why? Because God has set us free through the spirit of life, accomplished by the secured salvation that we have in Christ. I want you to notice something here. This is a sidebar. I want you to notice the Trinitarian work that's going on. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit at work in your redemption. See that there. See it there clearly. God is doing what the law could not do by sending his own son and the spirit of life, Holy Spirit, all at work here to bring us redemption. So what? What does that mean? What what implication does this have for my life? Does it mean that I'm just to happily do what I continue to do in life without any kind of reflection on how this impacts me? I'm, I'm not condemned. I just keep living God is giving me this freely of his own grace, accomplished it through his son, sending his spirit. We have to keep reading. So not only has he declared our new life, not only has he accomplished this new life, we see, number three, our new life displayed. This is critical. Look at verse four. Notice that little phrase, in order that. You see that? In order that. There's purpose. There's a reason. God has done this. One of the reasons we could say that God sends his son is so that we could be justified, so that we could be declared in the right before God. That's been made clear. But now Paul moves on to share another reason why God has done this, why God has sent his son. He has done so so that we can be sanctified. He did it so that we could be declared right, justified. Now, he, now we see that he did it so that our life will be transformed and so that we'll begin a lifetime of obedience to Christ. Not only has Christ died to justify us, but the Spirit now has been given to sanctify us, to make us holy, to lead us in righteousness. 
One way that we could summarize these verses here in Romans 8 is that our justification has resulted in us facing no condemnation so that we will continue to grow in sanctification. Simplify that. Our being made right with God has resulted in us facing no consequences from God so that we'll live a life of faithfulness and obedience to God. Now listen, when we refer to no condemnation, and then we talk about this word sanctification, this means growing in holiness. You don't get no condemnation without sanctification. If you think, okay, I'll take the no condemnation, I'm not interested in the sanctification part. That's not the Christian gospel. You you don't just grab verse 1 and stop. There's a whole lot of other verses here. If you're going to have justification, if you're going to be made right with God and no longer be condemned, that will result in order that, he says. That will result in your sanctification. It will result in your growth in godliness. You see, Paul is just as concerned for the Christians here to know that the work of Christ not only secured their future in heaven, but the work of Christ also transforms our present. Why did God do all of this? We're told in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. There's a lot embedded in that verse. Basically Paul is saying that God did this so that something could happen that could not happen from God's law. Namely, that the righteous requirement of the law, holiness, might be fulfilled in us. You could say, well, how was that fulfilled? It was fulfilled in Christ. He came, he lived the life we should have lived. He was holy. So his righteousness now clothes us, but there's more to it than that. Because he says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This transformation takes place so that we can now walk in step with the demands of God's law as it reveals God's holy character. Listen to how Martin Luther put it in an illustration that he wrote a long time ago. Luther said this, describing our relationship to the law and and, and obedience. He said, it is as with a sick man who wants to drink some wine because he foolishly thinks that his health will return if he does so. Now, if the doctor, without any criticism of the wine, should say to him, it is impossible for the wine to cure you, it will only make you sicker. The doctor is not condemning the wine, but only the foolish trust of the sick man in it. For he needs other medicine to get well so that he can drink his wine. Thus also our corrupt nature needs another kind of medicine than the law, by which it can arrive at good health so it can fulfill the law. Two things Paul is saying here. One, as our substitute, Jesus comes and fulfills the righteous requirement of the law for us by living a perfectly righteous life of submission to God. But, number two, we also fulfill the law in Christ by living out the law's demands now as a Christian. We say it another way. Our obedience to Christ is not how the law is fulfilled. Rather, Christian behavior is the necessary mark of those in whom this fulfillment takes place. It's not as if the law doesn't save you so you now have no relationship to the law, you just live a life of grace and live and do whatever you want to do. No, that's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel says the law can't save you because of your sin. Your sinful flesh can't obey the law, that can't save you. Christ comes and saves you. Now he transforms you, you have the Holy Spirit, and now you actually have the ability to be obedient to the law of God as it reveals his character. We can't keep the law to gain salvation, but Christ comes and does keep the law. His righteous obedience is then credited to us with the result being that we now to desire the things that God has commanded. 
Recall chapter 7 where, where Paul says the Christian knows that the law is holy and righteous and good. And he also said later on in chapter 7 that he delights in God's law and his inner being. Where did that come from? It came from the Spirit's work in his life. This is not the testimony of a non-Christian. A non-Christian would not say the law of God is good and holy and righteous. And a non-Christian wouldn't say it's my inner desire and delight to seek and obey God's law. Paul is grieved in chapter 7 that he can't live according to it. Spirit changes that. God not only provides Christ to fulfill the law's demands in order to give us salvation, but he also sends the Holy Spirit to give us a new sense of obedience to what God's law commands. Now, Paul unpacks this some more by showing us several things about the present work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you read chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is all over the place. You could say he's all over every verse of the Bible since he inspired it. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is referred to at least 19 times. Pretty significant role that's being played here by the Spirit. So what Paul is saying now is he's saying that the life of the believer filled with the Holy Spirit looks like this. And so he talks about a contrast that the Spirit makes, a confirmation that the Spirit brings, and a call that the Spirit issues. We're going to see that there, and we're going to have to drop off the end of it till next week. But let's at least see most of it. What's this present work of the Spirit doing in this new sense of obedience that he is, he is making in our lives? Number one, let's consider the contrast that the Spirit makes. If you look at verses 5 through 8, Paul highlights several contrasts here. He, he looks at two different kinds of people. Those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit. Two different kinds of people. Those in the flesh, those in the Spirit. Basic, the two basic natures of of people. There are only two types of people in the world from this vantage point. Those who walk according to the flesh, those who walk according to the Spirit. The flesh, those who are worldly, self-focused, self-interested, immoral, ungodly, etc. Those who are walking in the Spirit have a renewed nature, new desires, a Godward focus, delight in godliness and righteousness. Two types of of people, you see it there. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So there are two types of people. There are also two spiritual states. Those who walk according to the flesh, death. Those who walk according to the Spirit, life and peace. You see that they're described in Verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. But there are also two attitudes that are contrasted here among these two people. Those who have the mind of the flesh and those who have the mind of the Spirit. Again, the, the mind of the flesh, the mind of the Spirit, an attitude or orientation of the heart. You see that there in verse 5. But I want you to notice, especially verse 7, the corrupted mindset of those who are in the flesh. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Listen to this. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. By implication, those in the Spirit can. Those in the Spirit can go after God's law, can submit to God's law, can please God. Those in the flesh cannot. They don't submit to God's law, they can't submit to God's law, and they can't please God. And then he contrasts that. You, however, there's a different story. Verse 9, you, however, are, are in the Spirit, not the flesh. So you have the two types of people, two spiritual states, two attitudes, two types of conduct. Those who please God and implied those, or excuse me, those who cannot please God and implied those who do. 
And the point that he makes is that those who are in Christ will walk in the Spirit and therefore bear fruit. Listen, this great distinction that he makes is, is, is critical. It's true that there are only two types of people in the world. That means that this room has two types of people in it. Those who walk according to the Spirit, those who walk according to the flesh. Those who are saved, those who are lost. Those who will inherit life, those who will inherit eternal death. Those who are condemned and those who are not. Friend, if you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never put your hope in Christ, if you've never repented of your sin and placed your faith and hope in Jesus, this is what this chapter would be calling you to. This life that's being described here that will continue to be described, this no condemnation, this no separation, this great life where God is working all things for your good to make you more more like Jesus, this great assurance and confidence can be yours. If you'll simply quit trusting in the things of this world and quit trying to, to work your way to God, quit trying to please Him by your own works so that maybe, maybe, just maybe, I'll get a seat on the plane. Don't be satisfied with standby. Know that your seat can be confirmed if you'll simply look and trust to, Je- look to Jesus and trust in Him. Believe in Him. Embrace Him as Savior and Lord of your life. It may be that you've walked in here today and you, you've thought about this before and yeah, maybe I need to think more about this. Friend, you're not promised another breath. Have you trusted in Christ? Or are you you comfortable with the standby status and maybe I'll get in, maybe I won't? Friend, you can have confidence and you can have hope today if you'll simply believe in Christ. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. He gives you this freely. He gives it to you. There's the contrast that the Spirit makes, but there's a confirmation that the Spirit brings. Verses 9 through 11. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if, if, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Several things to note quickly here about the work of the Spirit in confirming certain truths and giving us certain privileges to enjoy. Number one, we have assurance. We have assurance, verse 9 You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You're not in the flesh. It's a clear distinction being made here. doesn't mean there won't be times that we grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit or, or that we sin or that we give over to the temptations of the flesh, but it does mean that the basic orientation of our life, the basic drive of our life, the basic focus of our life, the basic... Leading of our affections will be in step with the Holy Spirit and increasingly bear fruit in the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you are not a Christian. Friend, I would just ask you does your life give evidence of the Spirit's presence and activity? And maybe you're not the best person to ask. What if we were to ask those who knew you? Does, does, does this person's life bear fruit, give evidence of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit? Does it seem that the basic orientation of their life is given over to the things of God? I'm not saying are they perfect. Certainly we can point out sin in their life and patterns of sin in their life and struggle, Romans 7. We can see Romans 7 tendencies in everybody's life, right? But is the basic orientation, is the basic drive of this person's life in step and in tune with the Holy Spirit, and is there fruit to be seen from that? 
Is that the case for you? This is what the gospel produces. Not just a future certainty of heaven, but a present transformation. We have assurance. We also have life. Verse 10. Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. The spirit of life is life because of righteousness. This means that we can enjoy the assurance and satisfaction now of knowing that we have life in the present, but also life in the future. Listen, though our, basically what Paul is saying, though our physical bodies will one day die, unless Jesus comes back before then, our physical bodies will one day die because of sin, we can rejoice because the Spirit will overcome death and lead us to life. He will raise us to life. This is the Holy Spirit here. Some translations don't make that clear, as if it could be the human spirit. This is the Holy Spirit, verse 10. The Spirit is life. The Holy Spirit is life because of righteousness. Therefore, we overcome death and have hope. We have hope. Verse 11 makes that clear. Basically, verse 11 restates verse 10. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is comforting, and this is something that establishes hope in our lives. You know, it's often difficult to watch the toll that sin plays on our bodies. Every day that we live, we feel that, don't we? Losing an hour of sleep gets more difficult the older you get. You feel the impact and the weight and the burden and the effects of sin in your life daily. And we're going to eventually die physically. Ten out of ten people still die. That's going to happen, and that's part of the consequences of sin in a a fallen world. But listen, as Christians, we can face this reality with certain hope because he who raised Jesus from the dead is the same one that's in us and will raise us from the dead. Amazing privileges that we now enjoy as new creations in Christ. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, which leads us to a third and final point. That the call, this, this, this confirmation and this, this work, this contrast that Paul's been making here, leads to a call that the Spirit issues. You get to the bottom of verse 11 and then you look at verse 12. Forget those paragraph breaks, alright, just those Let's pretend those aren't there. So then, brothers. Here's, here's kind of the application. So then, because of all of this, because you have no condemnation, because you are made new in Christ and you've been given the Holy Spirit and that you're walking according to the Spirit, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. Friends, you owe nothing to your flesh. You owe nothing to it. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So let that verse settle on your ears for a moment. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Not just physically, but be eternally removed from God. But, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Because of this work of Christ, because of the indwelling Spirit that now is within us, because of all of these wonderful truths, we now are called to walk not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And what he says there, one of the the results of all of this, is that we go to war against sin in our lives. We're going to talk more about that next week, Lord willing. But suffice it to say for now that the result of our freedom in Christ, the result of our new life in Christ, is that we live in step with the Holy Spirit and bear fruit, and that means that we go to war against sin. Brothers and sisters, the truth is clear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
The Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit guarantees it. It's yours. It's yours freely. It's a gift of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, there's no greater hope in all the world. There's no greater truth in all the world to know that there is therefore now no condemnation. That I have new life and it's all a gift of God's grace. Praise God for what he's given us. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise this morning and we are thankful for these amazing truths. Not just because We agree with them, not just because intellectually it's helpful. Lord, we are thankful because this is the difference between life and death. We are thankful, Lord, that we can leave with confidence this morning knowing that we stand complete in Christ. Lord, that we are no longer condemned. Lord, we live in a world filled with condemnation. We live in a world filled with all kinds of confusion and all kinds of struggle and sin. And Father, what a word of hope this morning. What a word of assurance. Lord, this is good news. And we thank you that you have given us this good news in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that our lives can be marked, Lord, not by the flesh, but Lord, by the Spirit. It's my prayer that as your people that we would walk in confidence this morning, this afternoon, this week, or that we would walk in confidence knowing these amazing truths, and Lord, that these amazing truths would, would resonate in our hearts in such a way that our lives would be shaped, that our lives would be transformed, that our lives would be different. Father, would you forbid that we would walk in here casually this morning just kind of doing our thing, just kind of satisfied with the way things are. Lord, just would you transform even our motives today? God, that we would leave here confident of our salvation in Christ. And Lord, if that's not dealt with, Lord, I pray that you would move upon hearts, that they would deal with that today. But Lord, as we leave here, that we would leave here knowing that you, you fixed our place in heaven. Because you loved us. And Father, that makes all the difference in the world in how we live today. How we treat each other, how we love each other, how we speak to each other. It makes every difference in the world of how we read your word and how we seek to be obedient to you. Not to try to earn some favor with you. You've given that to us in Christ. But Father, would you help these truths resonate in our hearts in such a way that we would leave here determined by your grace and filled with your spirit to be faithful. To be faithful as we seek to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God, do that work in us, we pray. In Christ's name.